Amen. Thank you, Yannicka. Well, good morning. morning. Having worshipped God through an awesome time of praise and having worshipped God by offering our tithes, we now join together and worship God through the hearing of his word. What an honor and a privilege it is to be here in the presence of God this morning and in the presence of the saints of God. And we are in the great Old Testament book of Nehemiah, chapter 8. We've made it to chapter 8. Not going to make it out of chapter 8 this morning, but we've made it to chapter 8. Next time, we'll make it out of chapter 8. We've been examining this book, and of course it's about the building of the wall. At least it has been so far. But then we saw a transition take place last week in that... Now the focus is not so much the building of the actual temporal um, wall, but now it's a shift on the building of the people's hearts. And last week we looked at two characteristics of what we would call a well-built heart. And that was that God was gathering his people around and now they had a desire to be together, of course, behind the safety of their well-built wall. They have a desire to be one. A desire for unity among the people of God is a characteristic of having a heart for God. And also the desire to hear from God, to hear God's word, a hunger for God's word. Well, I didn't give the next two sermons this title, but really uh, this morning is another characteristic of a well-built heart. And that is we're going to look at uh, the... The uh, concept of rejoicing in the Lord, a heart that takes joy in the Lord is a sign of a well-built heart. And then next time we're, we'll close chapter 8 with looking at an obedient heart. And that's another characteristic of a well-built heart. So we're talking about well-built hearts, but why should we even make this shift? I mean, the wall is built. The people are safe behind it. They worked hard. They sweat. They sacrificed many hours of sleep. And are very fatigued, and now they are safe from their enemies. Isn't that enough? And of course, the answer is no, because the reason that the well-built wall is not going to offer them the safety that we might think it offers them. Now the focus has to be on the heart. Why? Because the reason that the wall was in ruins in the first place was because the people's hearts went AWOL. The reason that they're having to clean the mess up and rebuild lives of worship is because their lives of worship went astray to begin with. And because their hearts sought after and hungered after false gods instead of the true God, he removed his divine shield of protection that's around us all. And he allowed the enemies of his people to come in. He allowed them to suffer the consequences of their sin. And so because of their because their hearts were basically in ruins, the wall was in ruins. And so by fixing the wall in Jerusalem, that doesn't solve the problem because the problem is the heart. And it reminds me of a word, a verse in Psalm 127, one that many of us have heard many times. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, 
the watchman stays awake in vain. And the idea is that human effort is not enough. God has to be in these things. He has to be worshipped through the building of the wall, through the building of the city. And when you remove God, you have you have a skeleton of a structure. You've so, so the watchman who stays awake, he diligently stays awake. He's a good soldier and he keeps his eyes open with two picks or whatever or red bulls. That's not enough. The Lord has to be in it. So there's this motive of worship behind it. So what do they need more than their mighty wall? Well, they need their mighty God back in their lives. Because life without God is a life of ruins. And if you don't believe me, seek after the false idols and try to satisfy the hungers of your heart in all the false ways that the world offers. And you will quickly see that that will lead you to a life of ruins. Now, we're looking in chapter 8, in the first eight verses, we saw that the people's hearts are beginning to hunger for unity. They're beginning to hunger for God's word. They even had a special wooden platform built so that Ezra, the scribe and priest, could be above them reading God's word so that they could see him and they could hear what God's word had to say from for them. They want to hear and engage with the living God. And so Ezra broke out the scrolls at their request for the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And as Mark Driscoll would say, they, they were longing for God's word. We want the Pentateuch. Yes, we do. We want the Pentateuch. How about you? So they were they were just wanting to hear what God had to say from them. And so he unrolls the scroll and he preaches God's word. He begins to read God's word. And the other Levites, his assistants, are out among the crowd of 50, about 50,000 have gathered in the Watergate Square. And they're in the crowd and they're explaining God's word if they had questions. And so the scripture says that they were getting it. They were clearly understanding the Pentateuch, whatever portion of scripture that Ezra was reading. And by the way, that was about a six hour sermon. Now, can you read and expound all five books of the Bible in six hours? No. So he didn't read all the way through it. uh, But. We don't know what portions he read, but he read maybe uh, different portions of the five books of the Bible. And so that's where we pick up this morning. So here they are. They they stood in reverence to God's word as he began to read it. But they also bow their heads because they realized as they're listening to God's word that they have forsaken the covenant that God made. With them, And so this is where we pick up in verses 9 through 12. And really, we're going to spend the remainder of the morning examining what it means to rejoice in the Lord or to find our strength in the Lord. And we close with that worship song, our strength where we are rejoicing in the strength. Lord, what does that mean? And really, we're looking at this idea of. God's rule over even our emotions. Have you ever thought about that God even wants to rule over our feelings and our emotions? And I'm going to call it changing emotional gears because that's basically what they are called by their leaders to do. So let's read the verses 9 through 12 this morning in chapter 8. 
Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And he said to them, Go your way, eat the fat, and drink the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, be quiet, for this day is holy, do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing, because they had understood the words that were declared to them. The power of the word of God. And by the way, this is an exhortation to go out and bring bring out your best. When they talk about you know, eat the fat, those are the choice. Those are the ribeyes and the T-bones. These are the choicest cuts of the meat and the sweetest wine. So this is they're being encouraged to celebrate greatly, to rejoice greatly, not just a little party, but a big celebration to 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 go all out in this. And it's a message of liberation, I think. And I I hope that God will use it perhaps to liberate some souls or maybe to liberate some emotions that are stuck in a place that they don't need to be stuck. And also, be honest with you, it's really a one-point sermon. Uh, One-point sermons don't look good on paper, so I turned it into a two, so it would look better. But we'll talk just a little bit about a time to mourn, but really we're just going to focus in on what it means to rejoice and be challenged by God's word in that. And I got to be honest with you, this passage really struck me. And, and you'll see why as I go through it, because uh, I wrote this sermon three different times. I scratched the first two. I spent way too much time on it. I just didn't know what to do with this idea of being asked by God to change emotional gears. And and how, how much do you care about our emotions? And do you really care about me being happy or sad? You know, I just really wrestled with this and and. And is God Lord of my emotions? So it's a very intriguing passage to me. I never really, I guess I just never really thought that deeply about it or thought, is it really that important to God? And as you will see, it is. But we're created in the image of God. God has tremendous emotion and passion. And because we're created in his image, we have also tremendous emotion. And passion that we experience in life. And our emotions are real. And they are an integral a part of our lives. And, and God wants, it wants and is using the gospel to redeem even our emotions. Even our feelings. He wants to be under the, the, the grace of his gospel. It's an incredible thing. So he wants and is restoring our emotions. If we are believers. And God wants us to be happy at the proper time. It's kind of like in Proverbs, we're learning that wisdom is competence in regards to the realities of life. It's being able to see life as it really is and operate in that. And God even wants our emotions to be properly engaged according to the reality of the moment. He wants us to be sad when reality or or, or the circumstance calls for that. You know, we... We call people twisted in this culture. If, if you're over there laughing and giggling and, 
and slapping your knee when something terrible and tragic has just happened. You are not right in the head. And God wants us to be right in the head and to have the uh, to, to basically match the proper emotion with what we should be feeling and experiencing in regards to the realities of life. And I think another thing that is so intriguing to me is it's not just about joy, but it's God just interrupts his own divine moment here. That to me seems a hard place to get people and he interrupts his own time of repentance. So let's look at this. First of all, time to mourn. So here they are. They're broken before God. They have clearly understood his word and they are weeping over it. I mean, it's gripped them the way it should. And they're realizing as they hear the blessings, as they hear the covenant expounded, as they hear the plan that God had for them and expressed in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy, they're realizing, oh, I have I am missing it. I have missed it. I have grieved God. The promised land is in ruins. What have I done? And it's like what? That moment of what's wrong with this picture, they're feeling it to the very core and they're just crying. They're they're owning, rightly owning their sin. And I'm reading this and I'm thinking, man, this is good. This is good, right? I mean, not just good, but really, really good because they're so sad and broken over over their sin. And it's good to be broken over over our sin. And it's kind of hard to even get to that place because we're so stubborn and hard headed. The place where we will be broken over our sin. It's the best that any preacher could ask for. It's almost like this Billy Graham crusade moment where 50,000 people are are repenting and grieving. And so they're broken. They're all crying. Mom's crying. You say, yeah, but mom always cries. But the kids are crying, too. I mean, there's kids there and they're crying. And even dad's crying. I mean, it's an emotional time. Even Uncle Mina Maya, cold-hearted Uncle Mina Maya is crying during this time as he is exposed to God's word. It's a beautiful, what it really is, it's a sacred moment. It's very rare. A very rare and sacred moment. And then something Something totally puzzling to me happens because over the moans and the crying and the tears, they once again hear the voices of their leaders, but they're not reading God's word anymore. Now they're saying to them, stop mourning, stop grieving. Verse nine, this day is holy to the Lord, your God. Do not mourn. Or weep. Now, I'd be thinking to myself if I was in that crowd, uh, what? I mean, God's word just broke me down into a puddle of tears. And you say, stop crying and stop grieving. How do you expect me to switch gears, switch emotional gears like that? And that's what they're saying. In essence, we got to switch gears in this sacred moment. In fact, he doesn't say, doesn't just say stop crying, which is hard enough. He says stop crying and 
I want you to rejoice. So that the solemn day is to be turned into a day of celebration. It sounds kind of counterproductive, but even cold hearted. How could these leaders ask such a thing of these people and break such a sacred moment? I mean, these people are obviously responding to the spirit of God. So what is the spirit of God doing among his own people? Well, here's what's happening, and that is it is a time to rejoice. The seventh, the first day of the seventh month, which is the day we are examining, is the Feast of Trumpets. And it's one of the seven feasts that the Israelites are to to practice as a form of worship. They are to come together corporately wherever they are in the land and practice this and worship God in a specific way. And one of the things they do during this feast, well, it's called the Feast of Trumpets because they blow trumpets. And usually trumpets are a an example or a symbol of some kind of celebration, usually. But they're also bringing offerings and sacrifices. So there's there's an element that could be of brokenness and solemnness and repentance. But there's also this element that could be of celebration. And to be honest with you, when you read the scriptures, it's just not real clear what direction that day should take. I mean, I think it's probably both. Maybe it could go either way. All the feasts have different themes and different motives and things that God is requesting of his people. But there is a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 12 when God is giving his people instructions about how to celebrate these feasts when they get into the promised land. And when it was written, they weren't there yet in Deuteronomy. Here's how I want it to go down. This is what I want it to look like. And uh, it's 5 through 14, but I'll just begin with verse 10 in Deuteronomy 12. But when you go over the Jordan and live in the land the Lord your God is giving you to inherit... And when he gives you rest from all your enemies around so that you live in safety. Then to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. So you can't just have your meetings anywhere you want or where it's convenient for you. There's going to be a specific geographical location, which, of course, will be Jerusalem, the city of God. That's where I have chosen to dwell. And that's where you're going to come and meet. There you shall bring all that I command you, your burnt offerings and your sacrifices, your tithes and your contributions that you present, and all your finest vow offerings that you vow to the Lord. And verse 12, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your sons and your daughters. So what we find is in these feasts is that you find... The commands to repent, but you also find the command to rejoice. You find both, sometimes within the same feast, sometimes within different feasts. So it's sorrow and joy. Have you ever considered that rejoicing is as important as repentance? I haven't. I have never considered Rejoicing as being anywhere near on the same par as repentance. I mean, I, I, I enjoy riding the altar of repentance to heaven. Because that's how I'm going to get there through repentance. But am I going to take the path of joy to heaven as well? I've always looked at, I guess, emotions as something as uh, pretty insignificant. Just not that big of a deal to God. Um, It's something that's 
more dependent upon my mood, my circumstances. You know, we're moody, feeling oriented. And I know that fake emotions don't honor God. Going through the motions, that's not enough. So why call for rejoicing? Why are the leaders doing this? They're coming at it from the angle. If there's ever a time, if this feast can go two different directions, if there's ever a time to celebrate, it's now. And here's why. You've just completed the wall. And you did it with God's help. This is a spiritual thing. And so this should be a day of celebration, celebrating what God is doing in your lives more than a day of mourning. It's a day of uh, of rejoicing. So it's almost like the leaders didn't expect and we don't know for sure, but it's almost like they didn't expect the the reading of God's word to take this path of repentance, because as soon as they start mourning, they are called to rejoice. So whatever the case, here they are and they're saying you've you've fallen under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And you've mourned and you've repented and that's good, but that's not really what this is about. This is about celebrating. This is about rejoicing in the goodness of God, in the grace of God and work of God in your life. So switch gears and rejoice. I want to look, uh, spend the remainder of our time looking at three implications of this passage for this command or exhortation to rejoice in the Lord. First of all, the idea of moving on. I think it teaches us that there is a time to have proper emotions, which means that there is a time where we have to move, make a transition from one emotion to the other. That's what they're being asked to do here. And when it comes to the gospel, there's an important balance between sorrow and joy. And we don't want to get stuck, certainly in the sorrow. By the very nature of the gospel, it kind of takes us on maybe what I would call an emotional roller coaster. Why does it do that? Because when you're confronted with the gospel, one of the things you are confronted with is your own sinfulness. I mean, you read God's word and you and you see, I have fallen short and not just a little bit. I have fallen way short. And, and the conviction comes and you realize, man, I've offended God and I, I've ruined my life and I've ruined other people's life. And the God and, and the gospel helps you to see how evil you are. And we don't want to see that. It helps us to see how mean we are. And not only are we destructive to ourselves, but we we lash out at other people and we're vindictive and we're angry and we hurt the very people that we love. And God's word just keeps showing this to us and revealing this to us. And so, yeah, we're going to feel pain and we're going to feel sorrow. And then it doesn't stop with us. We begin to see the pain and the suffering in others and other broken lives in the world. And you just go deeper and deeper down. And then you see all the evil. And sometimes I get sick and tired of just reading the headlines. I can't take another headline in the news about the wickedness of man and what people are doing to each other. And there we go just down and and we feel that sorrow and the gospel gives and takes away. And that's one of the places that the gospel brings us. But the gospel doesn't want us to stay there. There's the other side of the gospel. There's the joyful side of the gospel. And yes, we live in a world of 
grief. The world stinks and we're part of the stink. The gospel tells us. But we're not to stay there. Even when we realize through the gospel. That there are those and how can we not help but to feel sorrow that there are those that have rejected Christ and are rejecting Christ and therefore will face the fiery wrath of God that we will never face. And that is sad. And I guess in some measure we the gospel helps us to see the darkness that God sees in full measure. But the gospel also brings gladness because We read also that even though we're wicked and evil, that God saves us on the basis of grace and not by works. And then we read about how much he loves us and it doesn't even make any sense that he would, but he does. Then we read about the communion and the sweet fellowship that he has his eye on us and we can just have this one-on-one time. And he invites us into the family and and he shares his family with us and that's his, our brothers and sisters in Christ he's I'm going to share the goodness I've worked in their hearts and I've worked in their hearts and good things are happening and I'm going to share that with you and there's there's this hope and there's this gladness and and even the the, the hope that when he calls your name you will be the one to rise that the grave will not hold us. And there's a whole other life. There's a, the book. This is just the beginning. And in the eyes of eternity, just a, a speck. Our lives are just a speck. And so we are opened up to this whole new world that's mysterious. And all we know is it's incredibly good for the most part. It's gladness. Gladness because we, we know Christ. We love Christ. We can live for Christ. We can obey Christ. We can experience Christ and be forgiven for our sins and enter into this undeserved fellowship with the Father. It's the gladness. Alexander McLaren says, yet the sorrow is surface. The joy is central. The sorrow springs from circumstance and the gladness from the essence of the thing. And therefore, the sorrow is transitory and the, the gladness perennial, perennial. In other words, it's uh, the sorrow is is a moment and the joy that God offers us is eternal. The sorrows, there is an end to these things. They are circumstantial. You, you go in and out of them, but the joy of the Lord is continuous. It just never dies. It never quits. And so, to every sadness, there is a joy, a joy that is greater. And to all the darkness, there is that light of the candle that God shines by his grace. Brighter and brighter, the suffering is temporal, it's, it's circumstantial. No, we can't be happy about our sin and the pain and the suffering, but we can be happy about What Christ has done to the sin and what he will continue to do to the pain and the suffering of this broken world. That's why it's called the joy of the Lord, because it's what God has done. The emphasis on the joy isn't looking at ourselves. When we look at ourselves, that's where the sorrow comes from. But when we look at God and who he is, that's where the joy comes from. So, yeah. The the gospel kind of drags us through this pit of sorrow, but it's only on the way to gladness. Are we characterized by this? 
as believers? Are we, are we characterized by a people of joy? How do people view us? Because we are taking on the characteristics and conforming to the image of Christ and Christ's new joy. So the bottom line is that because God is a God of grace, there's grace found in every evil place, in every dark corner, whether it's in our hearts or on the speck of this globe. Because God is a God of grace, there is ever bigger hope. So the leaders are saying, you've mourned enough, you've cried enough, it's time to move on. Even at the expense of suffering great loss. Is it time to move on for someone here this morning, for us? As we think about, well, where are my emotions and where is my heart before the Lord? Have I been here too long? Mark Driscoll says, at some point the gospel must result in joy. It can't be an ongoing pattern of cyclical narcissism, looking at my sin, being depressed, hating myself, being discouraged, having no hope. It must at some point, I must at some point fix my eyes on the author and perfecter of my faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning the shame, and now sits at the right hand of the Father, so that I will not grow weary. And lose heart. That Jesus is to be my joy. So this command goes out from the leaders of the people to make great rejoicing. Then we see another implication that we find here. And that is that joy is a Christian duty. It just boggles my mind still trying to wrap my head around it, that God assigned days of rejoicing. I mean, who can do that? Who can say, I'm assigning you this day to be happy in the Lord. So you got, you got to wrestle with that. So how does he do this? Does God, sovereign as he is, all-knowing as he is, look down the halls of time and he's planning his people and the nation and so forth. And he says, there. I just, because I'm God, I can see they're going to be happy on this day and this day and this. That these are good mood days for, that they're going to happen to fall into. And so I'm going to put my feast on those days. And it's going to be a day of rejoicing. Is that how it works? How can he do this? How can he assign a day of rejoicing? And then you got to think, well, what if it just so happens that on this assigned day of rejoicing that it's not a good day? It's not a happy day because maybe we just lost one of our greatest national leaders. Or maybe our nation is in decline, moral decline, and everybody is just disappointed at the direction that God's people are taking. What if we've just experienced some kind of defeat in a battle? Or even worse, what if their car broke down on the way to the holy city and it's stranded on the interstate? Or even worse, the Internet's not working that day. They can't get their emails. They can't check things on Facebook. I mean, how can God expect someone to rejoice? Or even worse, the Xbox, whatever, is out. Or worse, it's just a bad hair day. I mean, it's worse. How could God be so bold? Well, I think the point is that 
that God doesn't work around people's emotions, but that people's emotions are to work around God, that people's that our emotions are to work around the glories God reveals to us in the gospel. That's how God can assign things, even days of rejoicing. So, in other words, rejoicing is a Christian duty. And God wants to redeem our emotions. He doesn't want our wires to be crossed, being happy about the wrong things and sad about the wrong things. Psalmist 40, in Psalm 42.11, I love this verse. The psalmist says, Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. He's given himself a pep talk and he's realizing, man, I don't feel good. I don't want to rejoice. I don't want to do anything right now. But I know that's not right according to the word of God. And so the the mind is telling the emotions, put your hope in God. What are you doing? There's always hope no matter how dark it is. Look at Christ. Look at God. That, That gives you reason to change directions. It gives you reason to switch Years. God is a God of hope. So God doesn't think that it's unreasonable to ask his people to rejoice on particular days, even for particular reasons at particular seasons, because he gives us plenty of reasons to rejoice without being cruel or cold hearted. He thinks it's very do- doable for his children to worship him. In that way, in his book, Desiring God, John Piper says positively Christians are commanded to have God honoring feelings. We're commanded to feel joy. Philippians 4, 4, hope. Psalm 42, 5. We read 11 uh, fear. Luke 12, 5 peace. Colossians 3, 15 zeal. Romans 12, 11 grief. Romans 12, 15 desire. First Peter 2, 2. Tender heartedness, Ephesians 4.32, and brokenness and contrition, James 4.9. It's a command. And we read this and we think, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I can't control my emotions. Who can control their emotions? I mean, things happen in life. There is brokenness, there is pain, there is hurt. And What are you telling me to do here? There there are real times to be sad. It's it's not under my control. Am I not entitled to allow my emotions to rise and sink with the ebb and flow of the circumstances of life? Well, our emotions are real. And God cares deeply about them. Sometimes it may seem that we cannot control our emotions. But because it's commanded, it's implied That somehow or other we have within the power of God or the grace of God, we have the ability to switch gears. It's implied that we can keep our emotions under control and live a life of cheerfulness as a matter of obedience. And we make a lot of decisions on a daily basis about our lives Submitting them to the obedience of the gospel. And this is yet another area. So we can't even let our emotions run astray with the things and the circumstances in our lives. In other words, our emotions, those circumstances, 
play a part. Scripture acknowledges that. Our joy cannot depend on circumstance alone. Otherwise, well, I think a big mistake as I thought about this, I think a big mistake that we make is trying to feel our way out of a bad place into a good place. In other words, we we want to be happy, but we're waiting for that certain circumstance to circle around to pick us back up. We're waiting for us to maybe wake up that one morning and just happen to be in a good mood and then we can get out of this funk. And a lot of times I think we make the mistake of just waiting until we can feel our way out of sorrow. But the way out is thinking our way out of sorrow. It's not with our feelings. It's with our mind. It's, it's thinking. It's applying our mind to the truths of the gospel. It's, it's opening our minds to the other realities and not just focusing on this one little part of our life. It's big and real and touches our heart, but life is bigger than that. And if we can't see that life is bigger than that with our minds, then we're going to be stuck. We're going to be stuck in this bad place. We can't wait to feel our way out. We have to sometimes think our way out by thinking according to the gospel. And choosing to to think just as we choose to think on the sorrowful things, choosing to think on the truths, the beautiful truths of the gospel of Christ and bring our emotions in line with that. Now we, we make these choices. We have to sometimes we have to choose to remove ourselves away from the things that are pulling us down. And that includes thoughts, our own thoughts. Sometimes we just have to remove ourselves from those. And, and not think them anymore. If we're, if we're in a crowd of people that are dragging us down to that continuously, we need to remove ourselves from that and, and expose ourselves to the beautiful truths and the promises of the gospel. Joy, true joy doesn't depend upon me. And it doesn't depend upon my temporal circumstances. It's the joy of the Lord. And there are always those who will say, wait a minute, I protest. Because I'm just a naturally grumpy, sour person. It's my disposition, and it's how God created me. Well, there are some naturally grumpy, sour people. We think of Puddle Glum in the Chronicles. We think of Eeyore in, the Winnie, in Winnie the Pooh. Everything is just, there's no good, it's dark. It hadn't, the bad hadn't even happened yet, but it's coming. <laughs> Just a matter of time. Preacher Alexander McLaren says some of us naturally, we are naturally faint hearted, timid, skeptical of any success, grave, melancholy, hard to stir to any emotion. To such there will be an added difficulty in making quiet, confident joy any familiar guest in their home or in their place of prayer. So he acknowledges, yeah, that's a hurdle. It's a challenge. But even such should remember that the powers of the world to come, the energies of the gospel are given to us for the very express purpose of overcoming. As well as our overcoming our even our natural dispositions. The gospel gives us a way out. 
of even our natural dispositions if we choose to take that path. Yes, God wants to redeem even our emotions. And if we can just get in the daily habit of gazing on the glories of the cross and what God has done for us as a matter of habit, then we can be joyful as a matter of habit. And it will eventually change even the hardest of dispositions. But it's not just a maybe a sour disposition that can rob us of our joy. It's also Practically speaking, a lack of faith, a lack of faith can rob us of the joy that small faith equals small gladness because we're too uptight. We're too apprehensive. Again, to quote Alexander McLaren, he goes on to say men venture themselves upon God's word as they do doubtful ice, timidly putting a light foot out to feel if it will bear them. And always having the tacit fear, it's going to crack. You must cast yourselves on God's gospel with all your weight, without any hanging back, without any doubt, without even the shadow of a suspicion that it will give, that the firm, pure floor will give and let you through into the water. So if we're if our faith is too small, if it's deficient. How can we expect to be happy when we're going through life just waiting for the, the bottom to fall out? Just knowing that if I take this step, and if I go over here, it's just it's doom, it's gloom, it's nothing good. We're not trusting God. And that's why we build on the rock. That's why we build not on our own thoughts. We build on God's revealed word. It's the rock. It's the truth that he has given to humanity. To, to feel and experience and to live in his reality. We build everything on Christ. It depends on him. And he holds us up. And when we have that kind of faith, then we can face each day. No matter what circumstances bring. So it's sometimes it's a matter of just making up our minds, our finicky minds. Do I trust him or not? Sometimes every day we have to make remake that decision. Man, life is hard. Yeah. Trust in God. He's sovereign. He's a sovereign. I'm, I'm stepping out on that solid rock today. I'm not walking on ice today. Who wants to do that? We've got to know that he's there, that he can hold us. Even through the broken things of this world, that he will bear our burdens, that he carries us even when we're weak. That he can free us from the bondage of our sin. We are not stuck. And we get to that place where we can just feel him under every step because there's such a strong faith. We just we just know God is right there with us. Here's how Paul puts it in Second Timothy 1, 12, 12. I am not ashamed for I know whom I have believed and I am convinced that he's able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. That's how he takes his steps and walks through his Christian life. Yeah, thin ice isn't very convincing, is it? And it robs us from enjoying that moment of life. Because we're just nothing but tense and uneasy. And then lastly, by the way, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. So that's what the fruit that the Spirit is growing in us and wants to come out of us. And then lastly, rejoicing makes us strong. Verse 10, do not be grieved for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Let me restate that 
in a negative way. The same truth restated in a negative form. The lack of joy in the Lord is a weakness. The lack of joy in the Lord is our weakness. A a, a constantly sad heart, it it wears us out. We know this. It just, it's taxing. It, It wears us out. It makes us vulnerable. It makes us easy prey. We can't bear bear the next burden of life that comes our way. And if we indulge in it, it's offensive to God. To fail to rejoice and be strong is to make ourselves vulnerable to the darkness and the enemy. It's to stay somewhere too long. And, And to even allow ourselves to just to be worn down. That's what it means by the joy of the Lord is your strength. If if we're sad and grieved and we fail to move on and we remain in that dark place, uh, it's like staying emotionally sick. It drains us. A light soul is able to endure. Christian work, it just so happens that the nature of Christian work can be uh, can be exhausting and we can be despondent by its very nature um, because of all the burdens that it carries with it. But the joy of the Lord is our strength. So believing in God, trusting that God is strong, putting our faith in the glories of the gospel and what God says and not what we feel. And reminding ourselves and bathing in that every day, it makes us strong. And it makes our hearts and our souls cheery. And we need to be a certain degree of cheery to please the Lord. And God doesn't say rejoice just on your emotions or anything. He gives us good reason to rejoice. He gives us good reason to rejoice. So as we close this, for example, this is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. What, what is he saying that we have to rejoice over? God made this day. God just gave you a 24-hour gift of life. He knows what's going to happen and he knows you're in it. He knows what you're going, going through in this lifetime and in just even in this 24-hour period. We can rejoice. God made it. He made it for you. He made it for you to live and he made it for you to enjoy him in it. That's just an example of how we can rejoice in the gospel. He loves us. He's working in us. He's going to work in us this very day. Enjoy it for what it is. Enjoy this day for what it is. It is a gift of God to you. So as we think about this, where are we? Where are our hearts? Are our emotions even under the sovereign rule of God? Or do we just run, let them run stray like little children and just kind of go with wherever the wind takes them? Maybe we're stuck. Maybe some of us are stuck and we just have not been able to move on in a place and it has been time to move on. Look to the mercies of Christ. Look to the powers of the gospel. Train your mind in that habit. God wants us to experience the joy. Let him set our hearts. Let him set our emotions free. He puts days on the calendar. 
by one of those, by the way, one of those days is the Lord's Day, the Sunday where we celebrate every Sunday the resurrection of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. And that's something to be excited about. We've got to choose to be excited about that. That we will rise when he calls our name. So how many people in this world really care? I mean, just really care whether we're happy or not. How many people in this world really care if you have joy in your heart? Not many. Only those that are the closest to you. Only those that really, really love you. They want to see you happy. Well, God loves us. And he wants us to be happy. He wants us to experience the joys that he gives to us as a gift. He wants us to see what he's doing for us. So let's not stop looking and let's not stop thinking until our heart is filled with the joy of the gospel. Now, it's possible that as we think about this, some of us might be thinking to ourselves, well, I realize that my heart doesn't have this kind of biblical joy in it. Because my heart doesn't have the biblical God in it. And if the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, I encourage you to open your heart to the joy of your salvation. And that is the risen Lord who offers forgiveness of sins. And to realize there is no place so dark that the hope of the gospel and the joy of the Lord cannot reach it. Let God minister to our hearts this morning. Let this be a place of salvation and grace and growth. And may God bless the preaching of his word this morning.